0: Everybody. Welcome back to the World War Now podcast. I'm your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dimitri Kaligan and our first clergyman on the show, Father Joseph Gleason. We're excited to have him with us. It's the week it's the second week of November here, uh 2022. Dimitri, how are you? I'm doing all right, Conrad. It's
1: uh it's a beautiful week and I guess there's lots of news to speak about. I've personally had a pretty busy time at the moment we noticed the last episode there were some delays me and conrad were tweaking things slightly but now the episode's out so you can go listen to it and watch it on youtube it's pretty uh covers a lot of things but of course the situation keeps changing from week to week so it's hard to stay on top of things um mostly i'll just say that there were a lot of a lot of uh powerful discussions happening over twitter on telegram and we we've always appreciated your feedback and we've received plenty of it since last week. So keep at it guys. And over to you, Conrad.
0: Yeah, no, it's, uh, between, uh, on the ground, ecclesially, all sorts of things, uh, in the church and the war things are, things are, things are chugging along. And, uh, but enough of that, we are joined today by Father Joseph Gleason, a fellow son for many years, at least, of Texas, like me, a priest in the Moscow Patriarchate. I'll give him the chance to introduce himself, but uh, it's morning your time, Father. How are you?
2: Uh, doing very well. Thank you for having me on the show.
0: No, it's 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 really our pleasure. Uh, I've kept up with your work for uh, longer than I've even been Orthodox, which is, you know, three years at this point. So, I uh, I'm very grateful for a lot of what you've done and uh, your work online writing, as well as even some of the video content that you've done brief as some of it may be. I found a lot of it very edifying, but uh, if you want to give a bit of an intro, maybe about who you are, where you currently live, how you got from, uh, from Texas and America over to Russia. I think a lot of people are very curious about, about, about that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, a lot of people hear that my Wife and eight kids, and I moved to Russia, and they instantly think, "Oh, you must have, uh, you know, Russian parents or grandparents, or you married a Russian." And no, no, we don't have any Russian blood that I know of. Um, that would be really cool if we did. <laughs> I would like that, but uh, you know, mostly German, English, a little bit of French uh, heritage, and uh, you know, my ancestors lived in America for since cent- for since the sixteen hundreds. Uh, my wife's ancestors, same way, came over from Germany several hundred years ago to America. And, you know, anyway, as a kid, uh, both of us were Protestants. I was raised by a um, you know, family that went around the country singing in different churches, uh, you know, preaching, doing altar calls, all these sorts of, uh, you know, Protestant things. And, uh, you know, my wife, she grew up also in a Protestant church. And anyway, I spent the first 30 years of my life as a Protestant and then discovered Holy Orthodoxy, uh, converted to the Orthodox Church. This was after, you know, after we had married. So we, we became Orthodox. This was about 12, 13 years ago. And anyway, uh, this was in the Antiochian Patriarchate, you know, the Antiochian Archdiocese in America. And... Um, I became a deacon, I became a priest. And then, uh, you know, I just had been watching how things had been going down morally in America. And in addition to that, I saw how, you know, the American military was going around the world doing a lot of things that I didn't agree with. And I really started getting alarmed whenever I noticed one state after another um, falling, you know, for this. This fiction of uh, homosexual, you know, so-called marriage, and and I just thought, you know, if this ever goes nationwide, if this ever becomes not just in Hawaii, not just in New York or California, but if this is, uh, you know, a nationwide thing, that's going to be a serious, you know, that's going to be a serious blow to the very foundation of society itself, because God created society to be founded on the family you know the family is where you take little children that are born and it takes you 18 years to civilize them and to prepare them to be a part of society and so if you take a blow at marriage and you destroy that if you take a blow at the family and you destroy that um, your entire society is going to crumble it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when and the only way out is if there's mass repentance and so I'd already been thinking about it, I'd already been looking at different options, but the real turning point for our family was the Obergefell versus Hodges Supreme Court case in 2015, uh, when, you know, five uh, liberal Supreme Court justices uh, decided to force down the throat of America uh, this fiction of, of gay marriage. and. Said, we don't care if you're in Kansas, we don't care if you're in Iowa, we don't care if you're in Texas, you will do this. You, you know, we're going to force it. And so that was in July. And in September, two months later, I flew to Russia for the first time to start checking things out. And uh, in February of 2016, I flew back again. In October 2016, I flew back again. And then January first, uh, two thousand seventeen, my wife and eight kids and I got on a plane and left America, and we moved to Russia. So that's how we got here.
1: Wow, that's um, you, you're very uh, at least from first speaking to you, father, it does seem very assertive of you to you know see an issue and then come up with a solution, or at least so in such a short amount, short span of time, analyze the situation and kind of. But I guess that's that's what comes with family life when you do have a a wife and children to care to care about. Firstly, I mean there isn't much time to really, I guess, uh, um, come up with some sort of elaborate solution. That you you would just need to kind of act upon, um, you know, act to sort of uh, provide safety first. Is is that kind of where you came from?
2: Well, um, I didn't just start thinking about Russia in July of that year. Um, I had already been it had been in the back of my mind, but it was in the back of my mind, sort of like, a, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, if things get really bad, um, I'm these, I'm this type of person that likes to plan about 10 steps ahead. <laughs> so it's just in the back of my mind, you know, what if there's a fire, you know, um, what if I lose my job? What if this happens? What if that happens? And so I guess that's just my personality. So already for, months or maybe a year prior to this, I had been toying with the idea of nothing soon, nothing immediate, but we could reach the point where this just becomes necessary. And so you know, I looked at different options. I looked at various countries in Europe. I looked at, you know, I looked at Eastern Europe, you know, Serbia, I looked at Greece, I looked in South America, I thought about, you know, what about Chile, for example? And I noticed a really interesting thing. Um, I didn't want to go to a country where there was already uh, gay marriage. You know, what's the point? Why go out of the frying pan into the fire? So so that right there crossed a lot of countries off the list. But I also wanted to move to a country where homeschooling is legal. And that also crossed a bunch of countries off, off the list. And so if you cross all the countries off the list that are... In favor of homosexual marriage, and you cross all the countries off the list that uh, forbid homeschooling. It doesn't leave you with uh, many remaining options. And <clears throat> I, I was looking at Chile as a possibility. Still, there's uh, a major Catholic presence there, but there's also a, a significant Orthodox community. And and you know, at the time I was looking, they did not, not have. Homosexual marriage, homeschooling was legal, but then I got to thinking of something else, and that is, what if I went to Chile? What if I went to Uruguay? You know, what if I went to one of these one of these countries, and and then we find there's a lot of oil there, or you know, something of high economic value, and so the American military shows up and turns it into a banana republic. Uh, most countries on the planet are kind of helpless in the face of that. You know, they they would not like it, they would not agree with it, but they wouldn't be able to do anything about it. And then I looked at Russia, and Russia, you know, you've got an Orthodox church on every corner. Uh, I literally drive past Orthodox churches and a couple of monasteries just on my way to the church that I serve at every Sunday. And uh, Russia absolutely forbids homosexual marriage. Uh, they don't have anything such as civil unions or any fiction like that. Uh, homeschooling has been legal in Russia for over 30 years. And in addition to that, I looked at the Russian military and I said, you know what? I don't think American can take them. I think if anybody is foolish enough to attack Russia, they're not going to it's, it's not going to work out well for them. Just ask Napoleon and Hitler. You know, it doesn't work. So I thought if I make my home in Russia, the Russian military Will be successful at protecting me from the American military to tell them, look, you know, your authority may go up to here, but here's this borderline and it doesn't cross that line. And, and I like that. I tell people that one of the things that changed for me when I moved from America to Russia is that finally, for the first time in my life, with a good conscience, I could actually put, we support our troops on my bumper sticker
0: the uh it, it's funny that you say that um because we our last episode and you you would know you you a lot of our last episode was based on the great compilation of those of prophecies and quotes that you had made but you yeah. know the saint Seraphim he talks about there's a trench you know antichrist will get far maybe you'll get a little bit into russia but it'll only make it so far you know much like mm-hmm. you know the global the, the gae may only be able to make it so far if they were to decide to go all out against against russia but uh, we're going to get into, Dmitri, and I are going to get into some stuff just about life in Russia, what it's like, especially maybe since the special military operation has started and other things like that. But just in general, especially for our Orthodox listeners, I'm just so curious, what was it like to, as an English speaker, as an American, what was it like to move as a clergyman to Russia and then become a part of the Moscow Patriarchate in that regard as in a country where the church and the state have a much closer relationship? Like what was just what's that like i think we're all a lot of people are curious and i'm just i'm i'm interested to hear what what that what that was like
2: it's like a breath of fresh air to be honest
0: i mean in in america
2: i can't tell you how many times somebody had walked up to me and said what's orthodox you know or uh what's a patriarch you know they, they don't even have any context you have to explain church history and ecclesiology just to tell people where you go to church and uh, I literally, one time I was in St. Petersburg, this is before we moved here permanently. And in St. Petersburg, a guy walked up to me and he actually said, so you're from America. And he was speaking English to me, but he said, you're from America. Uh, what is Protestant?
0: <laughs>
2: he said, I, I've heard of it, but I don't know what this is. And so I had to explain to him, you know, what is Protestant? Um, a, a thing about living in Russia that, you know, until you come here, until you actually live here, you can't even imagine, is that it's not just that there's a lot of orthodox. It's not just that. Um, Orthodoxy is so ingrained in Russian history, in Russian culture, in the Russian mindset, that even the non-Christians, even the atheists, cannot escape it. And, you know, what do I mean by that? I mean, if you walk up to any atheist... In Russia, and there still are some. uh, And say, do you know who Patriarch Kirill is? They will say, yes, I just saw him on TV today. (laughs) You know, you walk up to uh, you walk up to somebody who is a a Muslim or a Buddhist or an atheist, and you say, you know, what is Christianity? What is this? And they'd say, oh, I know about Christianity. It's this thing where you have icons and incense and priests and robes. You know, uh, that's just what Christianity is. You know, that's how they would explain it. And, you know, you walk into a bank, uh, I'll never forget opening, you know, my first bank account, getting my first debit card in Russia. This was in St. Petersburg. And it was Sberbank, which is just Russian for, you know, savings bank. And I walk in and it's very nice. You know, they have a very nice building, uh, well-dressed tellers. Everybody's friendly. It's very professional, just like a bank in America. Uh, only difference is everything is everything's in Russian. But they had this big screen up, uh, just like they do in a lot of businesses in America, where they have you know this this commercial and this advertisement, and they were saying, you know, open up a new account with us. Open a savings account. Open this. Open that. And if you do. And and you've seen these types of things, you know, get your Nolan Ryan collector plate or get your, you know, get your commemorative, you know, (laughs) your commemorative Joe Biden thimble or whatever. And and anyway, I kid you not, in this bank, you know, just what you would think of as a secular place, they said, open up a new account today and get a free uh, silver plated icon of the Theotokos. (laughs) (laughs) i was <laughs> <laughs> just like i'm not in kansas anymore toto you know this is this is nice this is nice i walk into my local bank here you know uh, in boris seglebski or in rostov and it just looks like a normal bank but then you walk around the bank and you know on the wall there's uh you know there's a nice painting of an orthodox church on the wall um you know, go on a road trip to Kostroma, and basically the city limit sign. You know, once you reach the edge of Costa and you're driving into the city, um, there's this huge icon of the Virgin Mary, the Theotokos on the side of the road. And then whenever you leave Costa and you're driving back south uh, and you get to the city limits, you see this big icon of St. Nicholas. (laughs) Um, So you're just out and driving and, and just Christianity is everywhere, even immigration. Now, you know, is there anything more focused on the government and bureaucracy than immigration? You know, it just mundane bureaucrats, you know, boring. And, and yet even there, I remember when I was uh, not just studying for when I actually took, uh, you know, whenever you immigrate to Russia as a foreigner, there is a it's not super hard, but there's a basic uh, Russian language test that you have to take to prove that you can at least get by with some basic Russian. And they ask also some very basic Russian history questions. They just want to know that you have some idea. It's, it's, I think, not that unlike, you know, the immigration test to America. You know, if you're coming to America, they want to know that you know about 1776 and the Declaration of Independence and some basic things, you know, George Washington. Anyway, whenever you're taking uh, this test that every immigrant has to take whenever they immigrate to Russia, one of the questions on the test is in what year was Russia baptized Christian? <laughs> and you have to know, it was the year 988. That's just part of what you have to know if you're going to move here, if you're going to become an immigrant. It's just, it's just in the warp and woof of society, so that even people who are atheists, even people who do not live as a Christian, at least to some extent, they have to think about it. You know, Even the days of the week, You know, their word for Sunday in Russian is literally resurrection. So, you know, and as far as the people here, it really struck me, you know, the the language is something totally unlike anything I was used to at all. You know, I, I was raised in Texas, and so I learned a lot of Spanish and uh, learning Russian is absolutely nothing like trying to learn Spanish. Uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, for an English speaker, it's it's quite a different way of thinking and, and talking. And, uh, you know, Russian food's a little bit different. And re- Russian culture is different in certain ways, and yet here's the really interesting thing. Uh, Literally from the very first week that I set foot in Russia, the very first time I came, and every time that I've been here since, uh, you know, I'm invited into people's homes. Um, You know, at the time, through a translator, I I would talk to people, and whenever, you know, if they're devout Orthodox Christians, and they find out that you are a devout orthodox christian then your family you're in <laughs> you you know it, it's it, it's just all of those cultural barriers all of the linguistic barriers all of the you know differences in food and practices and everything else all that literally just crumbles away and all that matters is that you're both orthodox christians you're both in christ and there's just a it, it's hard to describe but there there's a there's a certain level of deep down unity that's there. And, you know, it's not for all, you know, I'm not saying that every person who nominally says they're Christian and maybe steps into church, you know, once a year or something, but I'm talking about the people that, are, that regularly go, the people that are serious about their faith. Um, you know, I feel, uh, I, I felt a oneness with them and they seem to feel it back with me, you know, from the very first time I started coming here. At no point have I ever felt like, this you know this outcast foreigner that's just begging to be let in i've never felt that for not even from day one
1: well that's very heartwarming to hear father that it's been it's actually been that i suppose welcoming to yourself as a, already an ordained clergyman from a you know i guess to a russian it would be a foreign foreign nation and just that you were welcomed so you know so nicely and everybody understood well look here's an orthodox person but he's not he's not from he's not from russia he's not he's not of russian heritage but here you are, nevertheless, blended in perfectly, it seems, seamlessly. I guess on that note, um, have, have things become somewhat more tense, at least on the ground level, from your personal priestly perspective? Because it's one thing for, I guess, a layman to watch the news and to have certain passions get stirred up inside about what's currently happening with the special military operation and Ukraine and the recent conflict. But from your own personal perspective and your vantage point as a clergyman. Uh, Have you noticed, have things changed in the last 10 months or so? Well,
2: it's really interesting. So, you know, it kind of, uh, as an analogy, it kind of reminds me, I don't know if you remember what it was a year ago or two years ago when they were having the big uh, volcano and lava flows on that one little spot in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they'd show it on the news. And of course on the news, if it bleeds, it leads. Anything that's action, anything that's dangerous, it's just front and center. And so people were turning on their news, and and they were just seeing these lava flows and, and, uh, you know, things burning up and, you know, steaming seawater whenever the hot lava would flow into it. And, you know, I, I heard different people talking about how, man, I'm glad I'm not in Hawaii right now, you know, which is hilarious because if you actually look at a map of Hawaii, it's this little tiny, you know, speck way off to the edge. And there was absolutely no danger to 99.999% of the people in Hawaii. They were just going about their days the same as they always had. But the news wasn't showing all of Hawaii, it was just showing this one little tiny corner. So, similar to that, um, I've recently had people ask, you know, oh, I just don't know if I could, you know, I don't know if I could travel to Russia. I don't know if I could even visit there. You know, it'd be really weird to, to be in a country that's at war. And I said, "You live in America. You've been at war for the past two hundred years. <laughs> um, you know, uh, you know, America has been at war at what is it? I forget the exact numbers, but the last time I looked at it, I think out of the past two hundred forty years, America has been at war with somebody for two hundred twenty of them. But, but, you know, does that make you worry? You know, if you find out that America is dropping bombs in Iraq or that." Uh, there's a battle going on in Syria. Does that make you nervous about waking up and going to work in Austin? No, no, of course not. (laughs) You know, in in Austin, you're fine. And and so it's the same way here. If I lived in Donbass, I would be nervous right now. (laughs) I would be. I don't live anywhere near Donbass. I don't live anywhere near that front. And I mean, where I'm sitting right now, um, just north of Moscow, a little bit west of uh, rostov Veliki, I think it's about the same distance to Vladivostok for me as it is to New York City. So, you know, Russia is just so huge that, you know, there's places I could go in Russia that are literally farther from the war front than than you are right now. (laughs) And so, you know, for the vast majority of Russia, it's just not a concern at all. Yes, of course, if you... If you live somewhere that's super close to Ukraine, then, yeah, I can see where I'd can see where you'd be nervous. But in those situations, Russia takes really good precautions. Just to give an example, I recently flew to Sochi. Uh, I had a wonderful time there. It's a part of Russia where you have warm beaches and palm trees, even in October. And, and anyway, it um, used to be that a flight from Moscow to Sochi would take two hours. But now it takes about three hours and 45 minutes, so almost double. And why is that? Well, Russia is just being extra super careful. They want their people to be safe. So whenever they didn't want airplanes flying near the Ukraine border <laughs> to get to get all the way down there. So what happens is you leave Moscow, the airplane flies over towards Kazakhstan in that direction, and then uh, turns and doubles back towards Sochi so that at no point during the flight are you anywhere near the ukrainian border now i appreciate that i'm happy to sit on a plane a little bit longer just so they're you know just so i'm totally safe and there's no risk of anything happening
0: no i think uh i think in many ways uh, there's people expect that it's like it's it's like what everyone's seen a bunch of world war ii movies and they think it's everyone's batting mm-hmm. down the hatches you're on war rations every day i am still curious mm-hmm. though from like a financial perspective like i, I mean the country is still being sanctioned to sanctioned as best as the western world can can muster i'm just curious about like do you have to like if the specific bank cards not work is there uh is is there perhaps uh is there new alternatives developing for systems that perhaps were more functional before i'm just curious about the uh how effective perhaps the big because we're seeing the brunt of it here in the west i'm i'm wondering you know where what are my taxes what what is my high prices resulting in over there <laughs>
2: um at least for for me and for the average you know, at least in this area you know i can't tell you about people in other locations in russia but at least you know the location where i live um, we would hardly know that anything's going on at all you know since the sanctions began and now they've had what nine different rounds of sanctions i've, I've lost count at this point um haven't really noticed much of anything um there's a few minor changes so uh, you know, what are the changes? So uh, import vehicles are, they really went up in price. So that is one thing. If you want to buy, you know, if you're here and you want to buy a Chevy or a Toyota or most cars that are not, you know, yeah. domestic, like a Lada or Gaz or something like that. If you're buying an import car, uh, the price went up quite a bit. So that's one thing that I would say has been, you know, unfortunate. Um, and then you asked about cards. So, if you, had, if you were using a card from abroad, like if you're an expat and you had a, a Visa card or a MasterCard from America, yes, that stopped working here. Those don't work here now. Um, but if you live here, um, and even if you don't live here, if you've just visited here enough that you've walked in... and You don't have to be a citizen, you don't have to be a permanent resident to get a Russian bank account, to get a Russian debit card. I got one um, over a year before I moved here. And any Russian bank debit cards that you have, they continued working just fine. No problem. So the sanctions have absolutely no effect whatsoever on cards that you obtained in Russia. Uh, Now, it does affect... Like if you're wanting to do an international purchase, if you have a card that you obtained in Russia and you're wanting to use it to purchase something from America or Western Europe, that's not going to work. So, and there's ways around all of this. There's ways to, you know, pretty easy ways to get around all these things and do whatever you need to do and purchase what you need to purchase. So there's been a little bit of inconvenience here and there. But I mean, honestly, even even moving money, like if, you know, I know some people that have, that still have bank accounts in America or in Western European countries, and regardless of the sanctions, regardless of all the you know the rules that have been passed, the laws that have been passed in different countries, uh, people are still able to move their money here. It's still possible. It's still, uh, most people use crypto to do it, but there's other there's other ways as well. And one of the things to remember: the vast majority of the world is not America and Western Europe. The vast majority of the world did not sanction Russia and has not sanctioned Russia in any way. Russia still has good relations with China, with India, and, you know Brazil, South Africa, numerous countries, uh, n- a number of African countries, Turkey, and you know the former you know the CIS, the former USSR states. Uh, there are so many countries that Russia gets along with just fine. In fact, the majority of the world, Russia gets along with just fine. Um, that it's just it's propaganda. Whenever you hear people say, "Oh, the whole world has sanctioned Russia," well, well no, they haven't. You know, um, you know this this one particular club that thinks itself elite has sanctioned Russia, but the the majority of the world has not. And because of that, uh, financially, economically, even in regard to trade, there's been about fifteen. Uh, billion dollars already of, uh, you know, parallel trade that's been done where because of the sanctions you can't get, you know, you can't directly order this product or that product from America or for Western Europe. And so Russia gets it anyway, just getting the same product. Um, but they get it through India or through China or through one of these other countries. So um, it, it's a big game. Uh, a lot of it's for optics and, um, a lot of it's also out of just hubris pride you know you know them thinking they were going to turn the ruble into rubble and now the you know the ruble is stronger against the dollar than it was before the military operation so the west has a lot of power but they don't nearly have as much as they thought they did
1: yeah and the so called west we see it kind of uh you know I guess every five to 10 years or so it kind of collects itself and makes a collective decision. For example, I believe about 10 years ago, we saw that collective decision around Libya, like the whole West NATO united and the EU began sanctioning Libya at the same time, you know, propping up rebels etc cetera, etc cetera, causing these issues in the ni- again in the early 90s we recall the uh, bombing of yugoslavia the whole pushing the whole idea that well the serbians were committing these mass genocides across the board and i'm sure there were issues in those civil wars but this massive exaggeration and look these orthodox barbarians are causing trouble in the balkans and again mm-hmm. now we're seeing today father like the west has again united itself on a new front this time in in a place which, frankly, I did not expect things would actually happen about ten years ago in the Ukraine of all places. So a place which um, was always known for its uh, hospitality and you know easygoing people. I guess Ukrainians in general are considered kind of easygoing, culturally speaking, than say Russians. Um, so it's kind of like this weird, uh, this weird situation where you have these this very special like this what, what we call a special military operation at the moment uh, happening in a place where. Ten years ago you wouldn't even imagine a military even existed. It's it's just bizarre seeing if like a neighboring Orthodox country kind of like Ukraine, and I would consider Ukraine still nominally orthodox in terms of demographics, but whether or not the government is actually orthodox, I I'm not sure. And obviously obviously probably not, because we see who the people propping them up are. It's the same collective globalist West and it's it seems to be united around this idea.
2: I wonder what religion the president of Ukraine could possibly be.
1: Yeah, no, uh, yeah, it's a that's a good question, and I, Probably I mean, right? I... <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think, I think if we took a survey of exactly which you know which religion or which denomination each, because each minister or member of parliament of Ukraine belonged to, I think we'd get a pretty interesting Excel spreadsheet. Now, from what I understand, even I think at one point one of the uh, ministers of Ukraine was like a protestant minister as well like a pastor like a leader of a local protestant denomination as well so it was just it's just this bizarre collective of people um who are leading this country into seemingly oblivion i at least it's a collective it's this collective um collective push and who i I mean you mentioned donbass and how you know if you were living in donbass you'd be anxious i I agree father i think anybody living in donbass in the last eight years would have felt the sort of anxiety um it, it doesn't seem justified well, at a, all. Yeah.
2: Well, and that's an important thing. I, I, I appreciate you saying that, that anybody living there, not since February 24th, but anybody living there for the past eight years would feel that way. And that's the story that's not getting told in the mainstream media, which is, and I say mainstream media, I mean mainstream media in America and Western Europe, um, is things were not all peaceful and and kind and you know brotherly in Ukraine up until February 24th 2022 uh, for the eight years prior to that we have you know over 12,000 people brutally you know tortured raped murdered shot killed burned to death um, in the Donbass area uh, you know in fact when I first visited Russia even before I moved here when I first visited Russia, um, I visited the homes of multiple refugees from Donbass who were fleeing the country because you know the 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 Western Ukrainian military had been shooting and killing, and you know the whole maidan revolution had had, had happened and and so you know this has been a just a constant reality. i a few months ago i I interviewed, in fact uh, it was this summer. I interviewed uh, three different families that just recently uh, fled from Ukraine and they came to Russia and settled in Russia. You know, and they told me their stories of what it was like for the past eight years. You know, never knowing, you know, when if an army is going to come through or you know seeing a bomb blast and it's just down the street from you or you know bullets flying and being glad that it didn't happen to hit your own house. And finally, just getting so fed up with it and wanting to protect your children that they left their home, they left everything they knew, they left Ukraine and they moved to Russia because they felt like that was a safer place to be. Um, you know, they were not looking at Russia as the aggressor, they were looking at Russia as the you know, the liberator. Basically, uh, the war had started eight years ago, the war had continued for eight years, and finally, because uh, you know, Europe and America refused to pay any attention to it, uh, Russia finally came to put an end to the war, not to start one.
0: Well that's ah, uh, that's that's exactly how St. Lawrence said it would go down, was it not? And I think in many ways, we were talking about this before the program, before we started recording, the uh, what I view as happening in many ways in Russia is, you know, there's there's no more frontiers to explore anymore. Obviously all the land has supposedly been uh, you know, been occupied, been developed and everything in the world for the most part. But I, I kind of view what Russia is doing. It's it's created a new frontier kind of against globalism, against the the, the empire, against the, the global forces of, of secularism. And in many ways, as someone who, you know, comes from America, people who, you know, tamed a large, vast continent, you know, it intrigues me perhaps to go and move somewhere like Crimea or maybe a future... Liberated Kherson region, or or Odessa, or some of these places in the future, where a a a, a new civilization is 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 rebuilding and kind of restoring itself again, and it, and the, you know the opportunities that would arise for someone young or for for a family or something like that is it's interesting, it's promising, it's civilizational. It's not so much you know clinging to the falling the current empire as it falls where I currently live, you know that kind of thing, but. Regarding all of that and that that kind of idea, I know you're not a. I don't think you're. A, you, I don't think you describe yourself as any kind of military expert, Father. But we're seeing a lot of talk and a lot of people saying that it's so dramatic and bad that it has. It's going to have consequences of the of, of leadership in the Kremlin with the current withdrawal from Kherson, which we know is a very important city to Russian people and Russian history. I'm just kind of wondering your perspective on how are Orthodox people kind of taking that from the perspective of this kind of restored russian orthodox civilization that we're seeing standing up what we just talked about standing up to the collective west to the global empire
2: well overall i would say it's been very positive Um, you know certainly there's a a small minority of people that i know of in in russia who are more on the liberal bent and you know in many ways not not just this one but just in general and i would certainly say that those who are more woke those who are more liberal uh those people have predictably been you know, they were negative about Crimea eight years ago, and they're negative about the military operation now in Ukraine. And, and honestly, the you know, the handful of those that have left the country, as far as I'm concerned, it's uh, it's good for Russia. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's you know, the, the moral quotient of the country just raised a few points whenever those people left. Um, but the vast majority, you know, the people that I talked to on the street, um, just to give you an idea, um, my friend Sergei, he... And, and that doesn't narrow it down very much. You know, half of the people in Russia are named Sergei. But uh, <laughs> but my friend, Sergey, he, um, you know, he has his own business that he runs. Uh, he also helps out by driving a tractor at the at the monastery to help out the Orthodox monastery here. And he's a friend of mine. Anyway, I was uh, riding into town with him a day or two ago. And I just asked him, I said, you know, what do you think about the, what do you think about the the war what do you think about the military operation and it was just really interesting hearing his point of view and this was just a couple days ago he said he said my father is 70 years old if he could if they would let him he would go and fight now he said if they would let me go i would go and i would fight now Yeah, he said those are our brothers those are our cousins those are our you know those are our families. And, and and honestly, and he said for many Russians, that's not just uh, you know, it's not just Slavic brotherhood or human humanity in general, but it's it's literal. I mean, what we call Ukraine has been literally Russia for so many centuries that you know that to this day, it's just a normal thing. And many of the people I talk to in Moscow, in Rostov, you know wherever I go, uh, they live here but their mother lives in kyiv uh, they live here but their sister lives in you know in the donbass area and you know it's no different really conceptually than you know if you live in texas but your sister lives in colorado it's just it's like that and so this is not just figuratively their family this is literally their family <laughs> and it has been for centuries and they know that their family has been tortured and harassed and bombed and shot for eight years and they want it to stop. And since nobody else would stop it, um, there are many, 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 many Russians who are very happy to go over there and fight to protect the the Russians who are living there in the in the Donbass area in the eastern, you know, the eastern side of you know what we used to call Ukraine. And you know, now that now that area is part of Russia. But they're happy to go there and fight, or at the very least, they're happy to to pray for the success of the, the troops there. And they're happy to support, you know, to support the general effort there. It was just it was really touching to me to you know, he didn't just say this. You know, Sergei didn't just reel off something it was from his heart. You know, he, he put his, I wish I could have recorded his words and played them back to you and then auto-translate to English somehow. <laughs> I wish you could hear just the heart and soul that he put into to saying that to me. He he believes, he's just a local here, just, you know, a friend of mine that happens to live in this area. And, and he really believes in what Russia is doing. You know, he sees it as a very clear case of good versus evil. And, and I happen to agree with him.
0: Oh, well, I think in many ways, you know, we've, you know, we've expressed certain, we've expressed certain disagreements and criticisms we may have of Putin, which in many ways regard not going into the Donbas soon enough, ironically enough. Yeah. But regarding that, you know, we've we, we've come to the same conclusion, of course, that at this point, I think even not from a civilizational good versus evil perspective, just from a live saved perspective i think russia achieving its maximalist territorial aims is the best case scenario for everybody right now but i know i asked you a lot in the first question father just to circle back the russian army recently pulled out of Kherson, which in many ways people are seeing it as a as a big loss some people are saying putin can never recover from this i'm not that pessimistic about it by any stretch of the imagination but i'm just wondering is there a uh is there kind of a pressure from the people that you know that like they, that, is there a pressure being put on the current leadership in Moscow that they need to achieve? They need to do right by the people that live in these regions of Ukraine or Russia now.
2: Well, uh, there's certainly a sense that they need to do right by them,
0: but um,
2: I'm not hearing, you know, in Russia, I'm not hearing anybody really. I mean, it's not true to say I'm not hearing anybody. There's always people on both sides of the subject, but um I would say the majority of people that I'm talking to, they, they feel like Russia is doing right by them. That's why, you know, for whatever tactical reasons they had to withdraw at this time, you know, presumably to, to preserve life and to wait until the conditions are right to fully move forward and secure the new borders. You know, they spent several days evacuating many, many people out of the city. Um, now I understand it's very inconvenient to, to leave your home. That's not a pleasant thing. But you know, certainly if the if the army had just withdrawn from there and allowed the Ukrainian troops to come in and do what they did elsewhere and just torture and and murder anybody that they felt like was even a fraction, you know, of, of pro-Russian, that would have been catastrophic. That would have been not taking care of the people. But You know, to say, look, there are tactical reasons, strategic reasons to preserve the maximum number of lives that temporarily we need to withdraw from this city. Uh, Now, the Kremlin's been very clear. Um, That whole area is Russian land. It's part of the Russian Federation, and they are going to do whatever it takes to secure it and make it just as safe as living anywhere else in Russia but that takes time it's not something you do overnight and so for now to save the maximum number of lives if that means withdrawing the troops but prior to doing that you know having an evacuation bringing the people out of there and putting them you know back behind you know safe line where they can be um i don't see that as a problem Yeah. The, the war as a whole, I think we absolutely need to look at it and ask, you know, is it a just war or is it an unjust war? Is, is Russia doing the right thing or the wrong thing? Is Ukraine doing the right thing or the wrong thing? I think in the big scheme of things, you know, people like you and me can look at it and say, yes, this is a good thing or no, it's a bad thing. But when it comes down to individual, you know, very specific military tactics, um. I think humility is in order. You know, if if you and I are not, you know, brilliant, you know, have great, brilliant military knowledge, and and even if we were brilliant, even if we've been military analysts for the past 30 years, if we don't have the direct intelligence that the Russian military has at this time, which who does? (laughs) You know, almost nobody does. Um, If we don't have that, we really don't have a right to make a judgment on it. We really don't. Um, they may know a lot of things that impact the situation that we just don't have that information. And so, yes, I think we can look at the war as a whole and say whether we support it or not, whether we believe it's moral or not, I really don't think we have a right to tell the Russian army and the generals, you know, whether they're doing their job correctly or not. I don't think that's our place.
1: I think it's safe to say that third Rome wasn't exactly built in a day so and you know the dust <laughs> still hasn't settled um I think the you know the, the jury's still out on the question whether or not you know the conflict is uh, in, in a good state or a bad state it's just a, there's been a lots of ups and downs let's say for the last 10 months but nevertheless I think what father said about the evacuation of Kirson is I, I think it's people don't really appreciate the uh Exact technicalities associated with Ukrainian stormtroopers going house to house, apartment to apartment with rifles, AK-47s or whichever other NATO weaponry they have on them. And checking people's mobile phones, checking their telegram chats, checking their Snapchats, whatever, (laughs) Facebook messengers, uh, checking their um, browser history, literally on the gunpoint to see if they were collaborating with, um, quote unquote, russian collaborators in this is what occurred in hyrkov and this is what it probably is happening in Kherson right now as we speak now that ukrainians have entered into Kherson the um i think i believe a couple of hours ago now so and i think I some, yeah a little mm-hmm.
2: a, a, i just have a little insider info on that um multiple people i've talked to here where i live including a priest friend of mine who lives near here father valeri and it's not only him i mean there's multiple people that live here that have Uh, sisters brothers cousins that live in various uh, cities in ukraine and i've heard the same story from multiple people they say um right now i just cannot call them they can't call me we can't communicate i'm not i can't hear from them they can't hear from me and i ask why and they're like well you know the phones work the email works but we can't communicate at all and here's the reason because in ukraine in the places that are controlled by the Ukrainian army. uh, There's such widespread checking of phones, checking of email, checking of computers, that if my family member is caught simply sending a message to their mother in Russia or sending a message to their brother in Russia, they could be shot and and killed. And so just to save the lives of my family, just so they're not shot for for the crime of having family living in Russia, um, I can't talk to them anymore right now. That's what's going on.
1: Yeah, and that's that's really not surprising. Hearing these stories, probably from you know from your uh, laity and people you know father on the on the ground there, it's because we're kind of reading it online, and you know, I guess it's it's coming through second, third hand sources. But hearing it from yourself, it's yeah, it really is striking, and yeah, it harkens back to World War Two, harkens back to Nazis occupying Belarus and large portions of Ukraine for literally years on end. And, of course, we read about the saints last week, about St. Lawrence of Chernigov, St. Seraphim of Virat. So, these saints, they had to live under Nazi occupation for, you know, three to four years, essentially, in the Western provinces. And the Russian church was sending exarchs to them. And some of those exarchs, I think they're not canonized yet as martyrs or passion bearers, but maybe they will be in the future. There some, there were some exarchs sent by the Moscow Patriarchate into Nazi-occupied land to kind of minister to the other bishops and the clergy who were, you know, they yeah. disappeared. Um so the Nazis weren't exactly fond of orthodoxy in those lands either, but that's kind of going off tangent i I think what's interesting uh, Father mentioned that um the fact that you know criticizing the military not having the full perspective i I definitely agree i i think it's it's always good to have a certain um to keep standards somewhat high at least not not standards but uh at the at the moment, Russia itself is kind of positioning itself as this uh, country of the people, this uh, sort of collective democracy. So there is a, a sort of accountability there that, you know, we're sending our brothers, cousins and nephews to war. And we kind of want the war to be conducted in a certain or the special military operation, so to speak, conducted in a certain fashion. So um, but again, if there isn't much criticism on the ground, that's understandable. I think people are still. Uh, hopes are still really high. And I think the positivity left over from the 30th of September referendums, it's still, I think it hasn't really dropped off. I, I think, you know, the, the loss of Kyrgyzstan is only temporary. Um, but The other example the other day uh, I posted on Twitter was, and maybe Father Joseph would know, the city of Smolensk in Western Russia was actually lost by the Russian tsars and princes for, uh, for about over 250 years. Russia did return it here and there, but Overall, the city of Smolensk, which is now, I guess it's almost as important as, I'd say, Rostov the Great in some ways, like Yaroslavl, Kostroma, it's one of those foundational golden ring Russian classical cities. Smolensk was lost for about 200 years and no Russian, imagine 200 years, four gener- eight generations. No Russian ever forgot that Smolensk was built by Russian saints and princes that whole, that long time ago. And eventually Russia did get Smolensk back under the uh i believe it was alexei romanov so right before peter the great so uh yeah so you're you know let's not despair at this point those listeners who you know are feeling kind of blackpilled and a bit depressed over the fact that look it seems like russia's retreating always like no i'm sure the generals know what they're doing at the moment there are you know internal changes and i mean let's just put it like let's just give it how it is the ukrainians aren't exactly the most capable of you know military operatives either like we know the loss ratio is completely skewed unfortunately not in their favor for them so yeah and i at the end of the day i think uh, the die has not been cast yet and uh yes the rubicon has been crossed but you know the results are not in yet so it's just a matter of Exactly, waiting yeah
2: well and just putting everything together i mean something that i've joked about a hundred times but never really seriously thought about before and Now, with you saying that about Smolensk, you've actually got me seriously thinking about something, Um, and that is, uh, you you know what the prophecy says, that all the Slavic lands are going to be one, right? And, uh, you know, obviously there's different forms that that may take, and so I don't know for sure, you know, I'm not 100% certain what, what that means, but... Just looking at that prophecy, uh, putting it together with various prophecies I've seen that suggest that uh, you know something catastrophic is going to happen with America, where it becomes a much smaller player in world affairs than it is right now. Uh, obviously, we don't know the answer, but I just have to wonder. Uh, you know, we got Smolensk back; we're getting Ukraine back. When do we get Alaska?
0: hold on father, the, you know, the feds, they could, they could be breaking down my door any minute, you know, <laughs> because that's because you're what you're saying. Cause is getting more real every day. So, you know, it's, it's a joke now, but in, in 10 years, who well, knows and, how much of a joke. It's and, I would be. Not,
2: and I would not see that as a negative thing.
0: <laughs> well, I think the Alawite people would agree with you, mm-hmm. but. Um, well, it's
2: interesting. I've seen interviews with them on, you know, just on television and they still consider themselves russian you know they were uh, they were so christianized they were they so much became orthodox that you know when alaska was still russian that they consider themselves you know of russian heritage that's part of who they are
0: no the yeah the alaskan orthodox church is very fascinating you know people don't realize yeah i mean Amer- orthodoxy has been on north america for a whole lot longer than frankly, whatever faith most Christians subscribe to, because usually it's either a renovationist cult or a very later form of perhaps evangelicalism that really only developed in the 20th century. But Mm -hmm. putting that aside... Father, we talked you talked <laughs> about the unity of the Slavic lands. You know, there's so much we could talk about, of course. The unity of the Slavic lands and some of these prophecies that we discussed in the last episode, which everyone, of course, needs to listen to. You can't just dive in, you know, if you're just discovering our channel, you gotta listen to every episode. You know what I mean? They're timeless, so so don't be slacking. But uh we want to talk about the church unity as well. And we know they're there's been a big schism in the church in Ukraine, and there's been a lot of, we've covered it on this show, a lot of persecution of the canonical church at the hands of schismatics, at the hand of uniates, at the hand of of the government that we just discussed, you know, kills people for sending messages to their family. Um, what do you what's kind of your prognosis of the current situation between the Metropolitan and Ukraine and Moscow Patriarchate, the the schismatics, and I'm I'm actually optimistic for the future, but I'm curious as to your you're 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 kind of you would have a better perspective than me about the current situation.
2: Well, I'm very I'm very encouraged about it. I mean, I think the the current situation, of course, is very dire. It's very you know disheartening. It's bad. It's again, this is not something that makes it into a lot of the the Western news outlets. But for years now, continuing all the way to this current week, you know, I continually see all these news reports of you know violent. Uh, schismatic sects, uh, beating up a priest, beating up a deacon, threatening a priest's wife, uh, forcibly breaking into a church and uh, changing the locks and then working together with the local government to say, this is ours now and, and you Orthodox who are in communion with Russia, you're, you're out, we're throwing you out. Uh, just very violent, you know, horrible things. And yet my understanding, at least the last time I checked the numbers, is the vast majority of churches all over Ukraine were still under the Moscow Patriarchate. So the vast majority did not go into schism. Um, now, many did. You know, There's a lot of schismatic priests over there. There's schismatic bishops. But they are in the minority. Now, they're the minority that makes the most noise. <laughs> they're the minority that gets in the news. But uh, the majority of churches over there, my understanding is that they've remained faithful. Uh, second point: Even where buildings have been stolen, even where people have been beaten up, that's a tragedy. It's terrible. But the people themselves, the faithful Orthodox Christians themselves, who you know are staying connected with the canonical church, uh, they're the church. Those buildings are not. Uh, you know, buildings can come and go. Buildings can be blown up. Buildings can be taken over by you know heretics, whatever. Uh, God's after the souls, God's after the people, and those people are still there and they're still faithful to the church and they're building new churches or they're, you know, when, when they have to, they meet in houses or they meet in fields and they still have the divine liturgy and they still take the body and blood of Christ and they still, they're still praying and they're still part of the church. So I would say, if anything, the church is growing in strength, not, not lessening. Um, if you look at it in a worldly secular way, yeah, it really stinks to have buildings taken away from you and it stinks to be attacked and, and beaten up. But from a spiritual perspective, I mean, that's you know, it's like we're talking about the first three or four, you know, first three centuries in Rome before Rome legalized Christianity. That's kind of what that's kind of what's happening in Ukraine. We have a lot of we don't know their names, but we have a lot of catacomb saints right now, right today. And they're in Ukraine. Uh, people who are under persecution, people who, uh, you know, their lives are threatened, their livelihood is threatened, and they are remaining faithful to Christ in the midst of that. I, I look at that as a reason for encouragement, not discouragement.
1: Yeah, I look, the the discourse concerning the schism, it's, it's always kind of on the tongue, at least in the Ukrainian context. We spoke a couple of episodes back, and not sure if you listened to it, Father, but I mentioned at one point that An interesting break now we we mentioned eight years ago the of course the ukrainian donbass conflict began but exactly a year before Maidan, on in july 2013 there was this great congregation of clergymen and you know high-end political dignitaries too like lukashenko putin etc the president of ukraine at the time as well um so and basically the event was of course the the 1025 year celebration of the baptism of rus because I suppose as Father mentioned earlier, the year of baptism for Russia was 988, so 1988 would have been a thousand years, but of course 1988 fell under the Soviet rule, so there wasn't that many widespread celebrations in 1988 obviously. So the Russian church chose to celebrate 90, uh, 1,025 years, which fell on 2013. So in the middle of the year, in 2013, we had the Patriarch of Jerusalem, the Patriarch of Alexandria, all these archbishops from you know the Greek world, the, Mi- the Middle East, all arrive in Ukraine, Kiev, and celebrated with Metropolitan Anufri, the Patriarch of Russia at the time Kirill. Putin was there as well. And it was just great. I think they even had this huge outdoor liturgy where the The communion chalice was gigantic, and this was kind of like the last hurrah, I suppose, prior to whatever uh, scandals have emerged since. Uh, At least, it was the largest event, I guess, in Orthodox recent history that I can recall with, um, I guess, where everybody was somewhat amicable. Um, But besides that, you know, reminiscing about those times prior to 2014, prior to the Maidan and all of that degeneracy, I think what's important to note is that the current breaking communion or schism if you may is typically between the church which the church of russia which is quite large and makes up like, quite a large percentage demographically and in terms of bishops of you know i guess the entire orthodox world and this does not mean that all the bishops are ethnically russian of course there are chinese bishops japanese bishops from all the different peoples of siberia ukrainian bishops as well i mean there are more ukrainian bishops than there are greek bishops in the world almost like, just in terms of quantity. Uh, people don't really appreciate that. So, and of course, Belarusian bishops, etc., etc. And so you have the Russian church, which makes up this large percentage, and then you have the somewhat scandalous Greek diocese, break, um, you know, choosing to co-celebrate with schismatics. You have the Alexandrian church, the the church of Cyprus, the church of Athens, and of course, the unfortunate ecumenical patriarch himself. So you have these four Greek breakaway, I mean, these four Greek, you know, C's that chose to you know co-celebrate schismatics and i think people don't appreciate the the numbers here like these four c's that chose not to you know go by the rules and by the old church tradition they only make up roughly maybe 10-15 percent of orthodoxy in the world which mind you there are more orthodox people in ukraine than there are in those four c's combined so just yes. just numbers wise and people don't appreciate that you know catholics and protestants they always bring up this thing, well, orthodoxy is in disarray, but no, it's simply these, it's a loud minority similar to the loud liberals in the United States pushing their agenda, I guess, on subjects such as same-sex marriage, and of course the loud minorities in Russia who are leaving, or the liberals who don't want to be <clears throat> conscripted, who don't probably even physically, are probably not even physically capable to, uh, you know, tick all the boxes for conscription, or not even conscription, even joining the military well it's always the loud minorities who are creating the ruckus the scandals for the church and politically as well i think we're noticing that in ecclesiology um just wanted to hear your thoughts on that father because that's exactly how i kind of see it maybe i'm seeing it from a bit of a naive and a bit of a russo philic perspective but I'm, i just see it as a sort of allowed loud, somewhat semi-greek uh minority who are bringing this to the forefront and of course causing the whole ukrainian scandal in the first place
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first thing I have to say is there's nothing new under the sun. This is nothing new. The only people who are, uh, you know, see this as the end of the world and their worldview is just crumbling before their eyes are people that don't know history. You know, you look back and, you know, the head of the worldwide church is Jesus Christ himself. And when he was physically walking around on earth, uh, he chose 12 apostles and one of them was a Judas. Now, if Jesus had to deal with that, I, I don't think any of the rest of us are going to do any better. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> uh, you know, Jesus had his Judas. He, he chose, uh, in addition to that, he chose the 70 apostles. And out of the 70 apostles, four went apostate. Um, and then you look in the book of Acts in the very earliest you know, uh, time of the church and there were the first seven deacons chosen. One of the seven deacons went apostate, and that's where we got the Nicolaitans that are condemned in the book of Revelation. Mm. And so, you know, you know, if you want to talk about schism in the church, if you want to talk about apostasy, just turn back to Holy Scripture, turn back to the very first century, and you've got plenty of it when the apostles and Jesus are still walking around on earth. And and then you look throughout church history after that, and, and it just continues, you know, when you have, you know, the Nestorian heresy you could look at that as a schism you have the patriarch of constantinople causing trouble sound familiar and uh you know patriarch nestorius is introducing his heresy and and then what happens in the rest of the church uh well in a textbook you look in the textbook and you think oh this heresy popped up the whole rest of the church instantly condemns it and then we just continue merrily on our way but in real life you know it takes time to cut a branch off of a tree You know, there's a point in time at which the branch is whole. There's a point in time at which the chainsaw has got halfway through the branch, but it's still connected and sap's still flowing. It's damaged, but it's still part of the tree. And then there's the point at which the chainsaw gets almost all the way through the branch, and it finally breaks. And then there's the point at which the whole branch finally falls to the ground. And that's not instantaneous. It takes time. And in the church, that time can be years or decades. Or, or even longer. And so, you know, when this happened with Patriarch Nestorius, you know, whatever, 1500 years ago, St. Hypatius instantly broke communion. He said, we're not communing with each other. At the same time, St. Cyril said, I'm going to have patience. I, I'm going to speak to him with respect. I'm going to take years and communicate and write letters back and forth with uh, Patriarch Nestorius. So there's this period of time in which, You know, one saint is breaking communion with the bad guy, and another saint is being patient and waiting a few years until he breaks communion with the bad guy. And, and, you know, we, we could walk throughout church history and just see the same thing over and over and over and over. So, this really is nothing new. You have a couple of bad patriarchs causing trouble, you have schism being introduced into the church, and, you know, slowly but surely and methodically, you have the church responding to that. And so the chainsaw maybe is halfway through the branch, so to speak, but the the whole thing hasn't played out yet. And so we're, you know, we're looking at Humpty Dumpty after he fell off the wall, but he hasn't hit the ground yet. You know, it's just, it's a snapshot in time. Somebody took their iPhone out and clicked and said, man, this looks like an unstable situation. Well, trust me, when he, when he hits the ground, it will become stable. <laughs> and so I think that's important. Another thing, you know, when people are looking at this and trying to say, okay, yeah, but who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? I think it's helpful to note you know, a huge part. You know, look at who's under the Patriarch of Constantinople, the one who's been driving this whole schism. There's very, very few Orthodox Christians in Turkey, you know, anywhere near Constantinople. There's some, but very few. A huge number, over a million of his constituents are, are uh, in America. You know, if you were to put the Patriarchate of Constantinople, in the center of you know the population center of his constituents, you would probably have to move him to you know New York or Chicago or something. And it's just interesting. It's sad, but it's interesting to note. Um, you know, if we don't look at orthodoxy as a whole in America, but we divide it up and we say, okay, there's Russian Orthodox, there's Greek Orthodox, there's Serbian Orthodox. Um, you know, if you're Greek Orthodox in America, you're more likely. To be pro-abortion than your average American, not less likely, more likely. Uh, that's a horrible statistic. That's embarrassing. Now, a lot of the so-called Orthodox that are in favor of LGBT and other abominations—it's uh, not the Russian Orthodox. <laughs> you know, it's—it's. It's, uh... Now, am I saying every Greek parish is bad? Absolutely not. I don't want to say something like that. I am saying that they've got problems in America. The uh, a number of Greek. Dioceses and parishes in America have some real issues that need to be addressed. And I think it's, it's valid to look at that because if sin is involved, if sickness is involved, it has a tendency to spread. And so, you know, which is more likely to be right on, on the Russia question, on the Ukraine question? Uh, you know, the diocese that is standing strongly pro-life, that's standing strongly uh, for traditional family values and opposing homosexuality or the one that's kind of getting iffy on those
0: things. No, I totally, it, it's very true father. And we've talked a lot about on this show about, you know, prophecies regarding, you know, a new crew coming to, to, to steer the ship as it were. And me personally in America, I've, I've, I've seen it very, I lived in New York for a time when I was becoming Orthodox. I've seen unfortunately some of the fruits of Ameridoxy firsthand. And we know how much of oh. a hand the U S state department has in, uh, you know, in the current schism, such, I mean, obviously we're just in Ukraine now, straight up boots on the ground. But we've been, for those who don't know, the U.S. State Department has been funding and directly supporting the schism in the church since its inception, between giving millions of yes. dollars to influence the patriarch of Constantinople and all these other things, and so directly supporting and these not bishops. not like, uh, you know, like public meetings and... Uh, uh, yeah, Mike Pompeo know. met, you know, Dumenko, who is nothing more than a defrocked laymen but
2: uh yeah, yeah i mean the, it, for the media i mean it's public
0: yeah and i'm uh very grateful here in america to be under I, I don't go i don't attend a greek church i'm in the antiochian archdiocese but if i were in the greek church we're under metropolitan isaiah here in texas who's actually a very he's he's a good bishop and the the ephraimite monastery near me they they appreciate his uh they appreciate his leadership he was just here actually for the feast of the of the holy archangel synaxis of the holy archangels i wish i was able to make it out there but regarding the greek world and the prophecy i mentioned we love to talk about prophecies on the show and you've even before we've had you on helped us much with our with our journey and our our kind of quest to share a lot of the the saintly information with with english speaking audience and we know that you know, I don't say this in any kind of joyful way, but the patriarch of the Archbishop of Cyprus passed away, Archbishop Chrysostomos, who was a ardent supporter of not just the schismatics in Ukraine, but also, you know, forced vaccination and other unfortunate issues. And now, however, the two most likely replacements for this holy and uh, this holy and ancient see, founded by the Apostle Barnabas himself are very stalwart supporters of the canonical church in Ukraine and were stalwart uh, people who stood against, you know, COVIDism and, you know, the new world Order, orders attempt to, you know, really force, you know, this medical tyranny and this, you know, this vaccine stuff on people. So I know you were a priest in the Russian world, father, and I know you, you know, you learn Russian and that's where you, you're focused, but I'm just wondering what some of your thoughts on perhaps what's coming in the next few years in pan-Orthodoxy and in, you know, some of these places regarding even some of the prophecies, not just about Russia and Ukraine, but also how Russia-Ukraine perhaps leads into Turkey and into Cyprus, even in some of these other places.
2: Right, right. So obviously, you know, there's the, the prophecies of St. Paisios regarding uh, Turkey and things to come. Um, I haven't, you know, as you said, just me being in Russia, me being part of the Moscow Patriarchate, I've spent, I guess, maybe a little less time, diving into the, the Greek prophecies than I have the Russian ones, but I'm certainly aware that the Greek ones are out there and I've looked at those maybe less on a geopolitical, global scale, but just as an important aside. I'll tell you my favorite thing that Saint. Paisio said, you know regarding the end times, regarding uh, preparation. And the reason I love it is because it's not just you know looking at a crystal ball and being curious about what's going to happen, but being able to do nothing about it. Uh, St. Paisius actually gave, you know, the little guy, people like you and me, <laughs> people that have no say in, you know, the machinations of uh, you know, national governments. He said, here's some things that you yourself can do. So you're just a simple Orthodox Christian just trying to live your life, uh, you know, support your family. Here's what you can do. And St. Paisius said that uh, very hard times are coming. That there's going to be a period of a few years that are going to be extremely difficult. But he said, here's what you do. Get a few acres of land, you know, get a cow or a goat, so get some chickens, uh, plant some trees, plant some food, and you'll make it through. You'll do fine. You know, it's so simple. It requires hard manual labor, but the idea is so simple. And, uh, it really is something that, that a lot of us can do. You know, we may not be able to go sit, you know, on, on the Russian Duma and, and, and make a difference. We might not be able to go win a seat in the Senate or, uh, you know, convince the president of the United States to do what we want. But is it possible for us to at least consider, you know, moving out of the city and getting into the country and getting a little bit of land Uh, is it possible if we have a big backyard can we can we plant some potatoes can we plant some fruit trees can we get a, a milk cow or at least get a few milk goats and and get a little closer to the land and you know prepare in that sort of way I think that's a it's a really simple but a really powerful prophecy by Saint Paisios that the people who at least to some extent will embrace that simple side of life that they're going to make it. They're going to be fed even through the times that are very difficult that are coming up, but you know, on a broader scale, um, I need to go back and find where he said it. But I remember a couple years back, I think it was St. Cosmos of Aetolia and uh, he gave some very interesting, you know, prophecies of things to come. And and he's way back there. He's like a 1700. So we're talking 300 years ago. And he was giving a number of really startling, interesting prophecies. About well, and he accurately age.
0: prophesied about the Turkish yoke that happened in his lifetime. You know, he's, a, he's you know, yeah, he prophesied yeah. to all sorts of people throughout all sorts of ages.
2: Well, it's kind of funny, you know, the, the arguments that Greeks and, and Russians have, you know, are like like over women's head coverings, for example. A lot of people don't know St. Cosmos. Um He raised money and to purchase over 40,000 head coverings and have them passed out because he was really picking on the Greek women for getting away from wearing their head coverings 300 years ago. So, (laughs) anyway, (laughs) that's a little side thing, but
0: um, listen up, ladies.
2: (laughs) um, But Saint Cosmos, I think he's the one who said that when we finally get very near the end that there is going to be widespread apostasy in which, you know, we see that prophecy in scripture itself, but he got a little more specific and he said that half of the Orthodox jurisdictions would fall away. And, you know, that's a big deal. I mean, you think about one big jurisdiction falling away, that was Rome a thousand years ago. And that was, you know, catastrophic. That was significant. And now we see, you know, we see, Patriarch Bartholomew and his henchman, Archbishop uh, Elpidophorus just openly supporting heresy after heresy after heresy, worse than the popes did a thousand years ago. And uh, we see, you know, Patriarch of Alexandria siding with Bartholomew. And we see, you know, as you pointed out, uh, Chrysostomos um, siding with Bartholomew. Um, I don't know how the cards are going to fall. You know, I still would love to see repentance from all of these men you know the ones that are alive but it, it it's sad but it would not surprise me to see if this is maybe the first few dominoes falling towards that widespread not complete apostasy you know the the gates of hell will never prevail against the church but uh, a, a widespread apostasy of uh, you know certain jurisdictions just pretty catastrophically falling away from the truth
1: Hmm. And I'm not sure if you're doing this intentionally or not, Father, but you seem to be almost mirroring the words of Metropolitan Neophytos of Morphe. Um, He said exactly the same things uh, in early 2020 in a sort of, uh, again, very uh, clairvoyant, pious passion. And, of course, it's a premeditative warning as well that, look, there are tough times ahead, similar to Elder Paisios or Saint Paisios now. Um, But on the subject of, say, confession uh, and repentance, I... What we've spoken about on several streams is just the fact that this this conflict in the Ukraine and it, most conflicts over time, over history, especially in the Old Testament, we see this. There's an idea that a nation or a collective of Orthodox Christians could actually repent. If everybody repents at once, everybody attends church, they fig- they fix up their you know, spiritual life in, a, in the short term. God may actually grant them mercy and clemency for whatever degenerate sins they were committing over a long period for example we see that when the when the Rus, the early russians under uh you know prince oleg they and Svetoslav, they start raiding constantinople and of course the, the the byzantines well they get their act together you know and the theotokos appears over the city and she you know causes a storm over the sea and the storm protects you know um the the sacred city from the Rus barbarian pagans um so there's there's this idea that People can get their act together, Orthodox people, right? Even if they're nominally Orthodox, but now they're baptized, the members of the church, they they come back, they confess. There is maybe a fasting period, like what the Russians did in 1613 when they announced, well, we're going to select a tsar, a new one, like the Michael Romanov, but let's have a three-day fast, um, no no food or 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 actually anything to drink for three days, really intense sort of fast, right before the election. Um, We spoke spoke about that on Twitter recently. But besides the point, Father, I'm noticing this idea of collective um, repentance and the fact that, you know, victory is, of course, granted for God and not just victory, but uh, as well, just God's mercy is something that isn't really appreciated. I'm noticing in Ukrainian media, even though technically over 60, 70 percent of the country are baptized in the Orthodox Church, I'm not seeing any calls to repentance, any calls for God to aid them. And to the point where the only voice of reason seems to be Metropolitan Anufriy, and even he's kind of bound by this, uh, I guess, by the fact that the state is just pressuring him. I mean, by state, I mean the Ukrainian state is keeping him kind of bound in what exactly he can say publicly. So um, it's interesting, Father. I, I'm just your thoughts, I suppose, on the fact that you know, collective um, and. Even earlier in the stream, we mentioned you mentioned collective repentance was not happening in the states. Hence, you thought it was probably a wise idea to save your family from extra tribulations and move to Russia. So, collective repentance—what are your thoughts on that? I suppose as a um, as a as an element of the Orthodox tradition.
2: Well, I am all in favor of it. I, uh, I i i would be super thrilled to see. Mass repentance from the people in Western Ukraine, uh, from the government of the United States of America, from the governments of Western Europe, um, and even broader than that, I, I would be thrilled if America would repent of its, you know, of its dive into degeneracy and transgenderism and LGBT and all this. You know, in the context of prophecy. I think it's super important what you brought up, this idea of collective repentance and the actual possibility of, you know, heading off uh, judgment at the past, so to speak. Yeah, you know, I have a dear friend of mine who is a traditionalist, he's orthodox, has a big family, and, and I love him dearly. Um, and on most things, he's very traditional. You know, if you ask him about abortion or contraception or any of another number of different issues. You know, he's very traditional, very orthodox. He consults the writings of the saints. He consults the scriptures. But it's kind of a kind of an unusual thing. If you specifically talk about uh, Orthodox prophecies, he's skeptical. And he actually came out and told me recently, he said, I, I just I don't pay any attention to prophecies. That didn't hold any weight with me. I don't pay any attention to it. He said uh, you know the saints aren't infallible and you know, there's certain saints that have given certain prophecies that didn't come true. And so I just don't ignore all of that. And you know, I was just stunned by that, by that idea, you know, this compartmentalism, I guess you could call it, in his thinking, because you know, the same Holy Spirit that inspired the saints to be right about doctrine and right about morals. Uh, you know, that, that's the same Holy Spirit that inspired the prophets, <laughs> the same Holy Spirit that inspires the saints themselves to be prophets. And so if we, if we can trust the consensus of the saints on doctrinal issues because the Holy Spirit is with them, how can we ignore, you know, the consensus of saints on prophetic issues? Now, granted, if there's a particular prophecy and you can only find one saint who said it and it doesn't really jive with what a bunch of other saints said, then, oh, fine, you know, I'll grant that. But again, when you look at the consensus of patristic teaching, when you look at the consensus of what multiple saints from multiple centuries and multiple locations have said under the influence of the same Holy Spirit, how can you deny that? And and so I want to, you know, I don't want to give this person's name, but I do want to answer this point that they made. Uh, they mentioned some particular saint and a couple of particular prophecies that they felt like did not come true. And if that's the basis on which we're going to dismiss Orthodox saints' prophecies, then we have to dismiss the entire Bible. We have to dismiss all of Scripture. We have to dismiss every prophecy made by all the prophets in the Bible. Because I would like to point out to you Not just in the writings of the saints, but in Holy Scripture itself, where the Holy Spirit inspired a prophet to make a prophecy, and then it didn't come true. Uh, Now, do you think I can pull that off? (laughs) Uh, Are you familiar with the book of Jonah? Mm -hmm. And, And look carefully at it. What did God have Jonah prophesy that was going to happen to the city of Nineveh? He prophesied destruction. Armies are going to come in with a certain number of days and they're going to attack and they're going to defeat you and and you're going to lose. And so this is a prophecy from God through one of God's prophets. And not only that, but it's recorded in Holy Scripture, which if you're Orthodox and you're traditional, you recognize Scripture is infallible. Scripture is trustworthy. Scripture is true. And yet... By the time you get to the end of the book of Jonah, was Nineveh destroyed? No, it was not. Nineveh was not destroyed until 150 years later. <laughs> so, so, you know, even if you look at it and say, well, eventually it was destroyed. Well, it was not destroyed within the timeline given by the prophet Jonah. And so what do we do with this? Do we look at this and say, ah, the scripture's in error. We must dismiss all prophecy." Uh, The Holy Spirit uh, lied to us. The Holy Spirit didn't, you know, didn't get through to Jonah to tell the truth. Well, you know, you simply read the book of Jonah and it's obvious what happened. If Nineveh had continued on their current course, if nothing changed, then that prophecy was sure to take place. It was unavoidable. But what happened? The king all the way down to the lowliest slave, everybody in the entire nation uh, dressed in sackcloth. They put ashes on their heads. They fasted. They prayed. Uh, the entire city begged the God of heaven for mercy. And God did not respond and say, oh, I forgive you of your sins. I'm going to have mercy on you. But, oh, shoot, I already gave that prophecy, so I'm just going to have to kill you anyway. I'm sorry. You yeah, know, he, he didn't do that. The mercy of God trumps even the prophecies of God, and so did God make an error? No, He didn't. Uh, it's that we—this is our fault, not God's. We tend to look at prophecy in the wrong way. We look at prophecy like uh, you know Nostradamus or you know this uh, witch looking into a crystal ball, and you know here's what's here's fate, here's what's guaranteed to happen. You know, that's that's not how God works that's not, that's not how prophecy works God comes to a people that are in great sin and great rebellion and in their present state as they are unrepentant he says okay this is what's coming and sadly 90% of the time people don't repent it's very sad it's not what God wants but most of the time that's the case they don't repent and so, sure enough, that's what happens. The the you know the prophecy takes place. The the judgment comes. But when you have a person repent from the heart, when you have this extraordinary situation where an entire city, you know, the king all the way down to the to the lowliest people, repented their sins, beg forgiveness from God, heaven answers that. And God says, okay, that judgment, that prophecy was not for you. It was for the unrepentant you. But now that you have repented, now that you have begged forgiveness, you know, God is sovereign and God has every right to say, okay, we're going to go a different path now. And I think if we look at prophecy in the same way it is presented to us by God in scripture, um, it really presents a better way to look at the prophecies of the Orthodox saints and our current situation that yes, if America remains unrepentant, if Ukraine remains unrepentant, if Western Europe remains unrepentant, then all these things are going to happen. But there's still time to repent. There's still time to plead with heaven for mercy. There's still time to turn to God. And if we do that, God will respond and God will forgive.
0: No, it's such a... uh... That was such a perfect analysis for this podcast. Those are some of the points that we really want people to understand that that this isn't just, you know, we're really not playing like games here with prophecies and crystal balls, trying our best to guess the future. No, this is fundamentally about repentance and about, about recentering our life and society on Christ. And... I think I've talked about this in almost every episode, but what you're saying is exactly stated by Metropolitan Neophytos in a video that you can find on YouTube, The Power to Change Prophecy, which I'm going to link in all the show notes and the description on YouTube and everything. I've done it before. I'll be doing it again. And he has you know, already prophesied accurately about our day, about COVID, about the war, about all sorts of things. And he, of course, experienced the prophetic gifts of multiple saints in his lifetime. And he says when he's talking to the people about some of these terrible things to come, he's like, I hope and pray. There's people that say, oh, there's this crazy old man, the Opitos, out there babbling and talking nonsense about prophecies. I hope they are right. You know, by the grace of God, they will be right. You know, and he's saying this very lightheartedly and laughing at himself because he fundamentally does not care if people think that he's crazy, stupid, silly or whatever. And if, if, if his doom and gloom prophecies or his, you know, forewarnings of preparations don't exactly come true because the entire purpose as he elucidates is for people to repent. It's to call people to repentance. And there's a whole conversation to get into about the Holy Spirit and the essence energies distinction and how this only truly makes sense in the Orthodox paradigm. And this isn't, of course, a a, a systematic theology podcast, but I just think there's so much here to talk about and to just dismiss it like the story that you talked about, Father, but when people just, you know, it's it's truly just a modern mindset you know and just and, and that's probably if there's one thing we want to do on this show it's to just put out a hand to people to decouple themselves from the modern mind virus that is you know this 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 truly naturalist perception that even the most ardent of christians in the west often still like fundamentally believe
2: yeah, really, it really is about a repentance. It's, I mean, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which literally means to change your mind. You know, it literally means to turn your mind to God. And that's what God's after. You know, earlier I talked specifically about, you know, Kherson and the, the Russian tactical retreat from there, and that, you know, we shouldn't be worried so much about lines on a map. We should be worried about human souls. And that's true, not just for people's, you know, physical bodies and say and preserving their lives, in, you know, in that part of the world, but just in general. You know, the goal here is not that we can get through the end times as comfortably as possible. Uh, you know, the goal is not even that we preserve our lives or, you know, or that we, you know, enjoy our life here. You know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. The ultimate goal of all these things, the ultimate goal of God writing scripture, the ultimate goal of these prophecies the ultimate goal of you know us calling people and even nations to repentance is that eternal human souls which are of far more value than the entire universe itself would lay down their weapons repent of their sins turn to god and you know escape an eternity without him and embrace an eternity with him? That is the central question. That's the central thing that all of this drama is about. And all the other questions about national borders, about, you know, how long are you going to, you know, survive the end times? These are, you know, little tiny drops in the bucket compared to the central question of, are you ready for eternity?
1: Mm, yeah, I think I think many just uh, do not appreciate this, just the the fact that, yes, God is active in the world. It's not, we aren't We aren't gnostics, we don't believe in evil demiurge. God is, it's the same God ruling over us. He's Lord who uh, ruled over us in the Old Testament and the Old and the New Testament are aligned. We aren't Marcionites. There is a continual tradition which we follow, which we Orthodox Christians are uh, fortunate inheritors of. And uh, this is the church in which we live and through which we act to this day. And of course, uh, you mentioned, Father, just the fact that the um, the, pro- the prophetic tradition, the uh, the words of clairvoyant saints should be taken seriously. Conrad also emphasized that. I think, and those those who doubt, like like the fellow you spoke about, Father, the Orthodox Christian fellow, especially in the Orthodox Christian church itself, I think they should just uh, take a step back and just appreciate the Old Testament for what it was. And not just the Old Testament, but Orthodox tradition in the early centuries, a lot of it wasn't written down. St. Basil the Great speaks about how oral tradition was the foundation of things passed on from the apostles. Remember, the Gospels were only compiled all together in terms of a book collection at you know in later centuries, of course. And of course, in the Old Testament, prior to the Pentateuch and the Torah, a lot of verbal tradition was passed on from father to son, from rabbi to disciple. This verbal oral tradition passed on from Adam to his sons, all the way to Noah and from Noah to his sons. And when a when an Orthodox saint gives a certain clairvoyant Um, message from the Holy Spirit to, say, people who it's designated for, a lot of the time it simply simply is a verbal message. It isn't peer-reviewed. It isn't academically analyzed by a college of bishops or, you know, it isn't presented at a huge ecumenical council. No, sometimes it's sometimes it's very isolated and at times very private, but by the providence of God, it is later known to a broader audience. I think people need to appreciate that oral verbal tradition lives on in the Orthodox Church today. A lot in a, a large part of it, of course, through sermons at church, but another part is through those, these prophecies, which we see because look, St. John of Kronstadt, he will, he didn't like submit a PhD study at his local St. Petersburg university with his prophecies written in and they had citations and references to the scripture. No, he simply said them to his, you know, spiritual sons or whomever he spoke to at the time. I think, that needs to be ascertained and appreciated firstly by skeptics, um no matter you know what attitude the skeptics come into this with, this needs to be uh, kind of taken on board and secondly um a bit on a on a lighter note, I think Father spoke about how god is God is the Lord of the world, and he can in his mercy grant clemency to anyone even at the last very moment right before somebody is uh, you know physically punished here on earth and i think it's similar to americans who don't understand exactly what clemency or mercy is the american president can actually for- uh, forgive certain crimes of criminals during his term now an example of that would be donald trump not forgiving the january 6 protesters okay He could have granted clemency to those folks who, you know, maybe out of silliness or out of some sort of political zeal walked into the Capitol Congress building and, you know, caused a ruckus. But instead, Donald Trump granted clemency to, say, Little Wayne, who was a felon and he was found possessing a firearm. But that's just an example of clemency is a thing, is this... uh, element which is still used in the real world. And of course, God's clemency is much more powerful and potent than that of, say, Donald Trump, the US president. But that's, that's sort of what we're speaking about here, this sort of granting of mercy, some, sometimes through an economic outside of the law type process, similar to how God for, uh, forgave that the adulteress who was about to get stoned when Jesus Christ intervened and saved her from, you know, technically she was getting stoned for, a, you know, it, she was, uh, the people stoning her were simply following the law as well. So it's this granting of extrajudicial clemency in accordance with the spirit of the law that we're speaking about here. And, you know, that's kind of, I think, what the three of us here wish for Zelensky and his government. There's still time, you know, Uh, they can, uh, you know, they're probably bathing in the glory of taking Kherson and all these other victories that apparently are being prescribed to them. But look, the best victory, of course, would be to turn to Christ, the Son of God and the Holy Trinity and to repent and to you know embrace orthodox christianity i mean that would be the ultimate victory for ukraine and for its people
2: no i absolutely agree i mean you, you hit the nail on the head it's it's all about it's all about repentance it's all about turning back to god and, and in the midst of that talk about mercy it's also important to remember that you know judgment day eventually does come you know death eventually comes uh, eventually the holy spirit becomes grieved enough and your and your time is up so Mercy is available as long as you're breathing, as long as God lets your life continue, but you don't know how long that's going to be. So that's why it's written somewhere, you know, today is the day of salvation. Um, it's there, it's it's available to you. Uh, God's mercy is rich and full, but you have to take advantage of it right now and you cannot presume that it'll still be there for you tomorrow.
0: It's, it's very true. And, let, it's, and again, no matter how, much we make it into the nitty gritty on this show. Never forget that all of this is for not, if, if, if not for the sacrifice and love and and act of grace in the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. And we're, uh, and, and we need to always be emphasizing that the purpose of the show is ultimately to bring you the listener as well to repentance at the end of the day. That's, that's, that needs to always be the, the takeaway at the end of hearing what are often exciting and dramatic things happening around the world or happening in your, uh, you know, even even in your diocese, there are all sorts of things that are going on. So, thank you, Father, for always. Uh, it it feels good having having a man of uh, a man of God, a a, uh, a priest on to always keep us to keep us grounded to make sure we're always we're always keeping what's what's go, what's first first as they say. But and we also want to, with all the seriousness, I want to get on a bit of a lighter note uh, before we start to wrap it up here. I want to. Get a few things. I just some lighthearted questions. I kind of want to ask, and you can answer some of these pretty quick. You know, what was, what was the biggest uh, cultural difference that you realized you were kind of missing when you went to Russia? What was the biggest thing that you enjoyed? We came to Russia. You know, that isn't in America, or that is in America that you no longer experienced in Russia. Maybe besides, you know, the obvious cultural degeneracy and sorts of things. You know, what are your what are your new favorite foods? What are old? You know, these kinds of lighthearted questions. And then, if you could just let people know some things that. They might not know about Russia that you would like people in the West, Christians in the West to understand at this time in history. I think a lot of people would love to hear some of this.
2: You know, I'll tell you one of the most difficult things for my family and me is uh, you, you just can't find good peanut butter here.
0: <laughs> um, <clears throat> it sounds like I need to go to Russia because I'm deathly allergic.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Won't be a problem. Um, you know, we, we really love peanut butter and it's just it's taken a while for us to get used to the fact that if you want you know, like in America, you walk into Walmart and there's like half an aisle of like fifty different kinds of peanut butter and not here, you know, not you're just not mm-hmm. gonna find it here. Um occasionally you'll find uh, you know, some really bad peanut butter for like five dollars a jar. and say, eh, it, it's not worth it, never mind. But uh it's just not something they do here. But you know, that fantastic, you know, you can get good steaks here and chicken and Shashlik, you know these basically these kebabs of meat that you roast over the grill are just fantastic, and um, you know wonderful soups and and stews and just about everything that we you know loved in America. You know we love cooking it and eating it here. Uh, It's just a dearth of peanut butter. It really is a thing. Uh, Now on the positive side, you know if, if we're talking food, I don't have any problems with wheat, but I have a number of friends who are gluten sensitive, and you know they have various types of allergic reactions whenever they eat wheat products. And, uh, you know, or they can eat it, but maybe they just they don't feel good. They get bloated. Anyway, you know, multiple times, you know, multiple people have come from America to come visit here. And, you know, maybe they had some, some gluten issues in America that eat the pasta, that eat the bread, that have issues. Uh, I can't explain it. I can't tell you the reason. But they come here, and here in Russia, they eat the bread, they eat the pasta, and they don't have the same problems. So you know, I don't know that it's maybe because Monsanto is banned here. I don't know if it's a different, you know, breed, different type of wheat. But there certainly seems to be a sense, and I've heard this from multiple families, not just one, that the food here just seems to be cleaner. You know, it just seems to be, uh, you know, more easily digestible you know, fewer allergic type problems. And it's also nice because whereas you're paying a couple bucks in America here, you can get a loaf of bread for like 30 cents. So it's very affordable as well. And that's a, and that's a refreshing thing.
0: No. Yeah. I think uh, in many ways, I don't know if I can make it in Russia because I hear they love mayonnaise there and I hate (laughs) mayonnaise. So, you know, on one hand they don't have peanut butter. Good for me. On the other hand, I think they love mayonnaise, which I just know. I don't know if I can get behind mayo but uh... well, yeah,
2: you walk into <laughs> no, a store ahead. here and they will have a whole aisle just full of 50 different types of mayonnaise. The good news is nobody forces you to eat it. So there's lots of food here with no mayonnaise. So I, I think, I think you'd do all right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Cause that was, fact, at this point, that was my biggest issue. There's not much else holding me back at this point, but uh, I'm also just curious, you've done some traveling. I know I encourage everyone. I'm going to link it as well. He has a great video from Russia Beyond, which has, of course, now been you know censored on YouTube, but on other platforms we'll link it to, where Father kind of explains and shows his you know homestead and some other interesting things. But you've had a chance to do some more travel and stuff. We're going to end the show here pretty soon. But just what's some of the favorite places you've been, and what are some of the places you're hoping to visit
2: uh, in Russia or abroad?
0: Uh, in Russia, or maybe in the Russian periphery, you know, that you have now been access, given access to because of your location in rostov Veliki.
2: Yeah, yeah, so um, first I love Sochi, like I said, you know, you got warm beaches, sunshine, palm trees, uh, subtropical, subtropical environment, you know, they grow oranges and bananas and things there. Um, you know, I've been to St. Petersburg, Moscow, um, all over the Golden Ring, you know, Suzdal, Vladimir, Kostroma, all the way up to Galich, um, you know. Everywhere I go in Russia, it's beautiful. There's monasteries, there's churches everywhere, and what's really phenomenal is what they call the Golden Ring. Now, I'm sure both of you guys are familiar with the Golden Ring, but I'll just say a blurb about it because maybe some of the listeners have not heard of it. Uh, the Golden Ring of Russia is you know, just an ancient center of holy Russian Orthodoxy, Orthodox Christianity dating back to, you know, the foundational times of Russia. So, uh, and we're talking ancient cities as well. Um, Rostov, the earliest mention of Rostov in the, you know, in the, in the Chronicle is uh, the year 862. <laughs> so over 1100 years ago. And, you know, back you know, Russia was baptized in 988. Well, only three years after that, in 991, uh, Rostov was baptized. The first church was built. So you've literally had you know, Rostov the Great, which is about a three-hour drive north of Moscow. Rostov the Great became Orthodox, and they started having divine liturgies and services there before Rome fell away from the Orthodox Church. That's how ancient it is. You know, we, we, we were still in communion with Rome <laughs> whenever, uh, whenever Rostov became Christian. And so you have Rostov, and, and today Rostov is a, is a small town. It's about 30,000 people. And in that town of 30,000 people, there are five Orthodox monasteries just in the city limits. There's more outside the city, but just in the city limits of Rostov, there are five Orthodox monasteries and about a dozen churches, and all of them are Orthodox. And it, it's kind of the heart, you know. It's, it, it's, it's one of the smaller cities of the Golden Ring, but it's also one of the most ancient. You know, Rostov is centuries more ancient than Yaroslavl. Uh, it's older than, I believe, Vladimir and Suzdal. Uh, it's older than Moscow. <laughs> So, you know, from a time perspective, you know, really kind of the heart of the Golden Ring is this area where I live in Rostov. And it, it's just really beautiful. You know, if you go to the cathedral, the, the Dormition Cathedral at the, in Rostov, right beside Lake Nero, that's where the first wooden church was built in 991. Uh, later, a stone church was built. Centuries went by. Um, and that came down. And they built another one. The current stone cathedral that is in the heart of Rostov was completed in 1512. And so to put things in perspective, by the time this stone cathedral was built, there had already been orthodoxy in Rostov for more than 500 years. And when they completed the building of this cathedral and they started celebrating divine liturgies in this cathedral, Martin Luther was still a Catholic monk. <laughs> So, yeah, that's just a that's just a soundbite. I mean, I could go on for a really long time, just fascinating stories from history, fascinating miracles, uh, you know, incorrupt relics of saints. Um, I'll tell you this one thing that just really touches my heart is a dad. I have eight kids. And before I moved into my current house, I lived in the city limits of Rostov for two and a half years. And we attended the Dormition Cathedral sometimes called the Assumption Cathedral. And I assisted, you know, I served the divine liturgy there. And every Sunday, every Sunday after liturgy, Sunday morning, uh, all of us in the church, uh, adults and kids, you know, somebody would grab a, a flag with the icon of Christ on it. Somebody would grab an icon. You know, I might grab the gospel and we would go out and we would do a big cross procession all the way around the cathedral every Sunday. And, but really, you know, there's more than fifty canonized Orthodox saints just from Rostov alone. And what really, what really just touched my heart as a dad is I was watching my little boys, my little girls in that cross procession holding these these flags. And you know, every traditional godly Orthodox dad and mom, you know, what do they say? I want my kids to walk in the footsteps of the saints. You know, I want my kids to be holy. I want them to be godly. And what struck me was it was no longer figurative. It was no longer just spiritual. My kids' feet were literally walking in the footsteps of the saints. They were touching ground that numerous saints have touched, where numerous saints have been in cross processions and in holy processions and have walked back and forth to church. And in much of the world, that's just not something you can do. You know, you can certainly follow their spirituality you can certainly follow their faith which of course is the most important but there's something just very special and heartwarming about seeing your, your children literally walk in the same location as holy saints of god have walked do you feel like you're on holy ground
1: that's incredibly inspiring father and as you said heartwarming i i too wish my children one day you know visit these holy places and participate in these uh, grand liturgies and even, even the most casual of uh, the church, Malebens and other services, of course, it's I think it would be a blessing to actually witness it in person. Um, I just wanted to add that, of course, the Orthodox Immortal and Eternal Tradition is something we speak about here today. But, of course, if any if any listeners are interested in the Orthodox Church, the Christian Church, the Church that Christ built, the Church which hasn't changed for 2,000 years, Now you can, it's as easy to begin your journey as just Googling what the local Eastern Orthodox church, if it's in the city that you live in, maybe it's next door, maybe it's an hour away. And of course, I think the three of us would just recommend that, you know, it's worth, it's worth your time looking into it. Now you hear about these huge events happening in the news, like time is of the essence, but of course it's an investment in yourself. It's an investment in your own salvation. Do it for yourself, do it for your family, um, it's it's going to be worth it. Take the time, of course. Um, visit your local church. Speak to your local priest. I think we'd all make that recommendation. And I suppose with those words, um, I would just like to I suppose give a shout out to some of the some of the people that have been supporting us throughout the last few weeks. Uh, besides Father Joseph Gleason, of course, we have. Uh, I'd like to give a shout out to David Erhan, Big Flood, Jim Jatras, Patrick Casey, Jay Dyer, Baron of the Tiger, Elvov Tyler. And some of the other folks who are not mentioned and uh, perhaps uh, have temporarily forgotten as this podcast has been quite long and we've spoken about so many things and honestly could go on for hours more. And of course, you could find Father Joseph Gleason on RussianFaith.com and you could find his writings published on Substack, which you can subscribe to and uh, pay to support Father Joseph in his work and ministry on MovingToRussia.Substack.com. and. Of course, myself, Dimitri, and Conrad's work can be found at worldwarnow.substack.com. You could follow uh, Conrad at GnomeRad on Twitter, and myself at, at OCanonist on Twitter. And of course, our collective page on Telegram, World War Now, and World War Now underscore on Twitter is where we post most of our findings, which, of course, if you want to get involved in and if you want to give us feedback or chat about some of the issues we brought up today or when the episode goes live, of course, you're welcome to engage. And hopefully, we'll have some live Twitter spaces. Now, I'll just hand it over to Conrad now. And it's, overall, it's been a pleasure, Father, speaking to you for this first time. I've, actually, it's been incredibly engaging. I haven't even noticed these last two hours just fly by. Well,
2: thank you no, so much. I feel a meeting of the minds. I've really appreciated uh, talking with you. And I want to thank you for having me on the show.
0: No, thank you, Father. It's really a blessing, and uh, we're gonna. We're, I don't think this will be the last time we have you on, of course. And uh, I want to give you the opportunity. I think uh, Dimitri did a good job of uh, saying everywhere to find you. If there's anywhere else you think that people should follow you, and uh, I also just want to give you the opportunity, if you could, you know, give us a blessing, bless the audience, and uh, then we'll we'll say goodnight to everybody.
2: Well, absolutely. I'd like to, you know, you already mentioned uh, RussianFaith.com, which has been around for a few years. Uh, you mentioned my moving to Russia Substack. Um, I also just wanted to give a shout out to two other publications that I think hopefully are very helpful to people. One of them I contribute to, which is you no know, the Russian Christian News Syndicate. Uh, you've probably seen that on Substack, the Russian mm-hmm. Christian News Syndicate. Um, I assist with that, and it's just really interesting. It's not just focused on one news source, but... You know, it's a team of people that really scan the, the Christian news in the world and uh, look at you know, orthochristian.com, Global Orthodox, um, you know, the Union of Orthodox Journalists, look at uh, Orthodox Reflections, just a number of different sources, and try to pick the most interesting news of the day that would be interesting to Orthodox Christians. And, you know, just every day on that Substack, there's an email with about three or four of the top most interesting articles, because obviously not everybody has the luxury of time to go scan all the hundreds of news articles that are out there every day. And so it's just it's a nice little resource. And then the other one, there is a a nonprofit group located in Russia that, you know, has supported the creation of a a really quite. Interesting. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but uh, Global Orthodox—it's uh, gorthodox.com. Uh, Global Orthodox News, and uh, you know, if, if I'll, I'll give you the link to that, and you can put it up with the links to my pages if you don't mind. But it's really interesting. They—they uh, they cover a lot of really interesting news, and, and they cover certain things that maybe you see it in other news sources, but you, you get a really good perspective on it. If you've looked at some of the other news sources out there, now, I love Ortho-Christian. That's a really good one, so I'm not saying anything bad about that. But there are certain news sources out there that are, you know, funded by the State Department, uh, funded by people that are in line with Patriarch Bartholomew that maybe tells the news but tells it slant, you know, tells it twisted. And I've just, I've been very impressed with the quality the the good quality of news that comes from global Orthodox. So that's something I would also like to recommend to everybody.
0: No, those, I've, I've seen the global Orthodox page on telegram and stuff and they've, they've shared our content. So I, we're grateful to them for that as well. And, you know, one of the things father Joseph was talking about is, you know, Orthodox times, just be aware. They got a hundred thousand dollars from the U S state department. So, you know, be be aware of yep, that. Yep. But uh, if we could just get your blessing, father, we'll, we'll land this plane. Absolutely.
2: In the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit. May the Lord bless both of you and all the listeners. And may the Holy Spirit be with us and grant us all hearts of
0: repentance. Amen.